Jesus then took three of his disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration into the glory of Yahweh. Next to him, as he transfigured into the glory of God, and he now reveals that I am God. I am physically showing you. Not only have I spoken words that are of God, not only have I lived a sinless, sinless life and passed the test that proves that I'm God, not only have I done miracles that only God could do, or only God would do through me if I were claiming to be what I am, if I was telling the truth, but now I'm physically showing you the glory of God. I am the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God that appeared before Moses at the burning bush, that brought you out of the de- Egypt, that took you in the wilderness, that came to Mount Sinai, that came down the tabernacle. I am that. And then two people appear before him, Moses and Elijah. And they begin to talk about Jesus' exodus. And you're like, why are they there? Here's one reason they're there. Moses was the beginning of Israel. Israel existed as a people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and Judah, and all that kind of stuff. But Israel did not become the actual people, the the nation of God, with the law of God, until Moses. Moses is the one that made them, adopted them, through God at Mount Sinai. Moses is the one that brought them the law, that gave them the, the right to be a nation. And Moses brought them to the promised land, their land. That was the beginning of Israel as a nation. So then they go through all their history. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, and Kings. Then you come to chapter 17 of Kings, 1 Kings. Elijah walks in the scene. Now at this point, we already talked about this, Israel has become horribly evil. Israel's worshiping the golden calves again. Israel's worshiping Baal. They're sacrificing their children to the gods. They're, they're, there's oppression of the, the people. There's idolatry. There's, there's injustice and corruption of justice. They are more evil than even the Canaanites, according to the narrator. And then comes Elijah. And Elijah becomes like the second Moses. And he looks a lot like Moses. He does the same things that Moses do, like Jesus is doing. And he does everything that Moses does. He gives the law. And he does all these. He does all these miracles. But what he's showing them is, I am like Moses, and I'm reminding you of who God is and what He did to you. I'm reminding you of the Exodus. In fact, Elijah has his own little mini Exodus. Moses had an Exodus where he brought them out of Egypt into the Promised Land. Elijah then has his Exodus out of the Promised Land, going to Phoenicia. Except nobody goes with him. And what he's showing is in the new Exodus, nobody's joining him because you're all so sinful and evil and you're refusing to repent. And if you don't accept me and you don't go with me in this new Exodus, this Exodus will become your exile. At this point, Israel rejects Elijah. And at this point, every single prophet after Elijah who comes starts preaching the coming of exile. Basically, Elijah marks the beginning of the end. And then after these prophets preach the coming of the exile, the exile actually comes. And now it takes 200 years before the exile comes, but the fact that they're preaching that it's coming means that this is the end. And so Moses represents the beginning of Israel, where he brought them out of Egypt in an exodus, but that exodus failed because Israel complained and rebelled against God and eventually died in the wilderness. And then when they went to the promised land, they failed to take it. And then Elijah is the second Moses who marks the end of Israel. But he too failed because not only did he not bring them out in Exodus because nobody accepted his message and followed him, but he also disobeyed God and died just like Moses did. And so now the beginning of Israel's 
the first prophet of Israel, and so to speak, the last prophet of Israel, standing next to Jesus, and they've both failed. Their exoduses have both failed to change the hearts of people to circumcise them. So they start talking to Jesus about his exodus, the exodus on the cross, where his atonement is literally going to bring you out of your sin. It's not going to bring you out of slavery in Egypt and teach you how to cover your sins through the animal sacrifices. It's not going to bring you out of Israel, the corruption, the evil of Israel during Elijah. It's actually going to take away your sins. And it's actually going to be your exodus out of sin and into the kingdom of God. And so the reason that they're there is that Jesus is showing that he is the better prophet. He is the better exodus. And he's going to do what they could not do, but he's going to become what they were pointing to. What they were pointing to. And this is why they're there. But Peter misunderstands it. And he's like, hey, they're, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Let's build tents for us all to gather here. As if they're all equals. Like Jesus is just another great prophet. A third Moses. And Jesus says, you have no idea what I really am. You have no idea what I really am. You're right. I am a third Moses. But I am the better Moses. The better prophet. The better exodus. The better atonement the better deliverance. Now that he revealed that he is the glory of God, he reveals that he's also the divine counsel of Yahweh, that he is on the divine counsel of Yahweh, that he is the word and the will of Yahweh, according to John chapter 1 and Hebrews 1 and Philippians 2. Jesus then began to make his journey to Jerusalem in order to die. At this point, Jesus says, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'm going. This is the first time he starts talking about his death. And even Peter's like, what the heck? That's crazy talk. Don't talk like that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Not that Peter's Satan, but preventing him from dying is what Satan would want him to do. Because Satan doesn't want an exodus. He doesn't want the atonement of sins. And so he begins to talk about his death as he moves to Jerusalem. Then, when he gets to Jerusalem, he gets on a donkey. Remember Genesis 49 says he will tie his donkey to the vine the wine. And here's Jesus on the donkey, just like Sam Solomon was put on the donkey. And he rides into Jerusalem, and he enters the temple, and he cleanses the temple a second time in his life. The very beginning of his life and the very end. Now, this is what's so amazing. Ezekiel saw that one day the temple would come again. And he saw this, and he believes. Remember, the glory of God left the temple, and the Babylonians came and destroyed it. And the God, Ezekiel saw this new temple that's not really a temple and looks more like a body of people. And he sees the glory of God entering into it and coming back into it one day. But when they rebuilt the temple in 515 under Zerubbabel, after they returned from exile, the glory of God never returned. And the glory of God has never returned since then. So what does Jesus do? On the Mount's Transfiguration, he reveals himself as the glory of God. And then he starts moving towards Jerusalem. And then he comes into Jerusalem from the east going westward, just like Ezekiel's vision. And he goes into the temple of God, and he is the glory of God that has returned to the temple. But then remember, he said the temple is actually himself. And so what he's showing is that not only has the temple been rebuilt, he is it. When people think that the rebuilding of the temple is the coming of the second coming of Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. The rebuilding of the temple is the coming of the first coming of Jesus Christ. He is here. 
and I am the glory of God that has finally returned. I am the temple. I am the glory of God. I am the better temple. And he proves that by writing in and cleansing the temple again and making it clear that he is going to do what this could not do. He is going to conquer sin and death as their high priest and become their sacrificial lamb in atonement for their sins. This victory would give him the right to rule over all creation. Jesus then cleansed the temple a second time, but this time he called the temple his house. The first time it was his father's house, but this time he says, my house. Reinforcing the idea that he was the temple and he's the father's house. Two weeks later, Jesus celebrated Passover meal in order to reveal to the disciples that he was their sacrifice for sin and that his death would inaugurate a new covenant. So Jesus pulls out, and what's interesting is when they do this Passover meal, there's no lamb there. There's no lamb at this Passover meal. In fact, it's so confusing. The disciples are looking at each other like, what the heck is going on? We're supposed to have a Passover meal and there's no lamb. Does he not know how to do this kind of stuff? Well, yeah, he does. He's been doing it for the last three years. But this year, there's no lamb. Maybe it's coming, but it's not there. And then all of a sudden, he starts talking about a new covenant. Wait a minute, Jeremiah 31, 31 said, Then that day God will make a new covenant. And it will not be like the old covenant. Remember, Jesus is the better law. And then he says, this is the bread. But it's not just the bread that's the provision of God, proving that I am the Messiah, but now it represents my body that is broken for you. I am the lamb. This is the wine. But it's not just the wine connected to kingship, and now that I've connected the cleansing of sins, but this cleansing of sins is also my blood shed for you. I am the lamb. And at this meal, he's saying, I am the lamb, and I will initiate another covenant. My death will bring a new covenant. Not a covenant like the Mosaic covenant that was cut with the death of a lamb. This will be a new covenant that will be cut with the death of my own body, my own life. And so he tells them this, that I've come to fulfill this. At this point, everything is tied into himself. I am the king, wine. I am the priest, water. I am the lamb, blood. And all three of those are connected together. And I'm going to become your new temple because I am the Shekinah glory of God. This blood atonement, these two things were the signs of the new covenant that would cleanse the covenant people of Yahweh in their sin. Remember, the mark of the Messiah is an abundance of grain, wine, and olive oil. You're like, wait a minute, we haven't talked about olive oil yet. I know, it's coming. We cleanse the covenant people and their sin, allow them to enter the Garden of Eden slash temple of Yahweh and dwell with them. Jesus then said that in his father's house are many rooms and that he was going to to cross to prepare a room for his covenant people. Now, this is a misunderstood passage. We always have taught like, oh, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. Well, what is the house? It's that big, big, big mansion in heaven, right? And that one day we're going to go there. And God's what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to go there and make a little bedroom ready for you and prepare a place for you so that when you die, there will be your own bedroom with your own name tag on the door and your own little Andy's mint there. Okay, And so this is all being prepared for you. And that's the way we think of it. But that's not what he's saying. Remember, John is the one telling you about this sermon that he's giving at the Last Supper. And John is also the one that told you that when Jesus says, in my father's house, 
He says, why have you turned my father's house into a den of thieves? But they did not know that he was talking about his body. And then at the very end, he says, this is my house. So he's already told you the father's house is his body. Now he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Well, where is he going? The entire message of John chapter 14, 15, and 16 is his death. He keeps talking about how he's going to go to the cross, but he's going to come back again, his resurrection. And when he does, he'll bring his Holy Spirit. And he keeps talking about his death and death. And Peter's like, no, 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 we'll go with you. And he's like, really? Are you willing to take on martyrdom like I am? Are you willing to really, truly take on the sins of the world and die the most horrible death and come back again? Now, he doesn't say exactly like that, but that's the implication. You have no idea what you're saying, Peter, when you say you'll go with me. Everything in this passage makes it clear that where he is going is to the cross. And when he's coming back, it's his resurrection. So he says, not I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you. And my father's house are many rooms. Who is the father's house? He is. So what is he talking about? Knowing that in John chapter 14 and all that, he keeps saying, remain in me and I'll remain in you. If you remain in me, I'll remain in you. And I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you remain in me, I'll remain in you. That's reciprocal. This is what he means. Remember, in the Mosaic Covenant, the tabernacle had two rooms. The temple had two rooms. The only room that God was in was the Holy of Holies. It was separated from everybody else with a veil that only the high priest could enter into one time with the blood of a lamb. No one could live in the Holy of Holies. No one was allowed in the Holy of Holies. There's one room. What is Jesus saying? I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you. Because in my Father's house, my body, there are many rooms. Tear down this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. Why does he have to tear the temple down and rebuild it? Because he needs to rebuild a temple with more rooms. Remember what happened when he died on the cross. The veil in the Holy of Holies did what? It ripped meaning that there was now access to the Holy of Holies. I am the Shekinah glory of God. I am the temple. I am my Father's house. Tear down this temple. They did not know they were talking about his body. And in three days I'll rebuild it. In my Father's house, my body, there are many rooms. And I'm going to prepare a room for each one of you. I'm going to go to the cross and die and come back because I've got to tear down the temple in three days, rebuild it. There are many rooms for you. And I'm preparing a place for you so that you can come and dwell with me. Remain in me and I'll remain in you. He's not talking about one day when we die we'll go to heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of God that he's going to create for you now. He's talking about that he's going to create a kingdom of God for you now. And you will enter into him the minute he comes back from the dead. And he will enter into you when he comes back from the dead. And this is going to begin to foreshadow the coming of the Holy Spirit that will make this possible. This is what he's talking about. We are already in the Father's house. And the Father is already in us. Peter and John and Paul all say that we are a dwelling place of God. They all say that the Spirit dwells in us. And Jesus says that he remains in us. The Trinity is in us. We are the new temple that Peter says that. We are the new, the Shekinah glory of God lives in us, which means we're the new Ark of the Covenant. 
We are the new covenant with Christ. This is where he's going to prepare a place for us. It's not about a materialistic mansion where you go play football all the time. That's sacrilege. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ where you're no longer divided from him because of your sin, because he's atoned for it. And now you can go right into his presence and call him Father, knowing you receive compassion and mercy because he knows exactly what you've gone through and he's died for you so you can come back to life again and him. We will have total access to Yahweh in a way that nobody else ever has before him. Jesus was the new temple of Ezekiel's vision, the glory of Yahweh returning. That night, Jesus was arrested and put on trial and crucified the next day. And Jesus became the more perfect high priest when he willingly offered himself up and became the eternal perfect sacrifice for sins for the world. The lamb in the first testament was offered up against his will. Jesus offered himself up willingly. The lamb was a limited animal that could not atone for your sins completely. That's why you had to kill another one and another one and another one. But Jesus is the perfect eternal son of God, which means if he is eternal, then his death is eternal, so to speak, and therefore his atonement is eternal. He did what no other human could do, conquer death through his resurrection neither of which humans could do. He had to be human in order to take the sins of humanity and be its representative, since only humans are sinners. And he had to die under the penalty of the law, which only humans could do. The water flowing out of his side when he was stabbed alludes to the river coming out of Ezekiel's temple. Ezekiel saw the temple one day, and a river, no river had ever flowed out of the tabernacle or the temple. But in Ezekiel's vision, he saw a river flowing out of the temple and going out of its side, and then flowing to all the world and turning the entire world into a Garden of Eden, including the Dead Sea. The one body of water has no life in it. And so now Jesus is on the cross, and he's stabbed in the side, and blood comes out, the atonement of sins, and then water comes out, representing the Holy Spirit. And even John, 1 John says, the blood and the water are the atonement and the Spirit of God. Referring to that. So what is it? Jesus the Ezekiel temple? And now the water's flowing out of the side. And the idea is the water's going to enter into you when you get baptized and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you are the river that goes out into all the world, making it the Garden of Eden. You are the river of life because you are in Christ who is the ultimate river of life you are the temple because you are in Christ who is the ultimate temple three days later Jesus conquered death and raised himself from the grave he was not raised by a prophet he was not raised by some incantation that was a self-resurrection Jesus then appeared to many people in order to help them understand the full significance of who he was. He was the God-man who was the king over creation. Forty days later, he took his disciples to a mountain where he gave them a final command. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came up and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. He declared that his authority was equal to Yahweh's and that they were to obey everything that he commanded them to do. They were then to go out into all the earth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into total allegiance to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is one of the clearest statements in the Bible of the Trinity. 
Remember, if you were to baptize yourself to a God, you're saying I'm pledging absolute total allegiance to that God and that God alone. And Jesus already told you, you cannot serve two masters. You will end up loving one and hating the others. And if you've ever had two bosses at work and they're giving you two different instructions all the time and getting mad at you that you're not obeying them, you know how frustrating that can be when they don't agree and humans don't agree. And so what Jesus now says, baptize in the name of the Father, baptize in the name of the Son, and baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit. There's no way you can pledge your absolute total allegiance to three different gods. Jesus made that clear. So by telling you to do that, he's making it clear that they're all equal. And then he says that I have been given all authority on heaven and earth and everywhere below. Only Yahweh has that. And then he tells you you are to do everything that I command you. There's no thus saith the Lord. There's none of that. He's making it clear that I am God. The Spirit is God. Father is God. And you are to baptize in our name. Then he tells us, to go out into all the world. Just as Yahweh commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and to expand the garden, so now Jesus was commanding his disciples to make disciples and expand the kingdom of Yahweh. And just as Yahweh chose Abraham to be a blessing to the world, so now Jesus was calling his disciples to go into all the world in order to bless them with the gospel message. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we're given the second part of that. So Acts chapter 1, 8 picks right up where Matthew 28 leaves off. Matthew 28 is a great commission. Go out and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to obey everything they've commanded you. He also tells you to make disciples. He does not tell you to go out and get people saved. You're to go out and save them and then disciple them. And that's what the church has failed to do for a long time in America. We save people and then we're like, good luck. Hope you show up on church on Sundays. Join a life group. This is about discipleship. And Jesus made it very clear that we are not... He actually doesn't say go out and get people saved. He says go out and make disciples. Now, you cannot make a disciple unless they're saved. So the salvation part is implied. And we've been so much like, get them saved, stamp, stamp, move on to the next one. There's this great quote. I forget the guy's name, but he says, We have been so focused in America on saving people's souls that we have forgotten about their minds. You know, the transforming and renewing of your mind, take every thought captive, all that kind of stuff. The helmet of salvation, not the heart of salvation or the breastplate of salvation. That now, because we've failed to save their minds, we have lost both their souls and minds. We haven't trained people to be disciples. Therefore, people don't even know how to follow Christ, which means they're not out witnessing anymore. And they're not bringing people into the kingdom of God. Jesus tells you to do this. But Acts 1.8 picks up from this. And then Jesus says, Behold, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the furthest ends of the earth. And I will give you my spirit, and he will come upon you and give you the power to do this. Now, in John chapter 14, when he was talking about my father's house, and he was talking about remaining me and remaining you, he said also, I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you, and I will come back. And then when I come back, my resurrection, I will give you the Holy Spirit. And he will come along your side and he will guide you. And so now Jesus is saying, this is the moment. I'm going to give you my spirit and he will give you the power to make disciples. You cannot do this without him. You are not the temple without the spirit. 
You are not the prophets of God without the Spirit. And he says, when he comes upon you, he will come upon you in power. Then Jesus ascended into heaven, and he went up with the clouds. This is where Daniel 7 is fulfilled. Remember in Daniel 7, Daniel saw a human that was sinless, who was approaching the throne of God with the clouds, and he was given all authority, all power, and all sovereignty, and eternal kingdom will never end, and everyone bow down and worship. And you're like, how in the world can a human be sinless and God and be given that? That means he's Yahweh, and he's a human, and he's sinless. That's, that's blasphemy. That's what the Jews thought. And you're like, okay, we know that's Jesus, but when did Jesus not have all authority in order to get all of authority? If he's always been God, that means he's always had authority. But now he's getting authority, which means he has to not have it in order to get it, which means was he not always God? But that's where Philippians chapter 2 and Daniel 7 come into place and Acts chapter 1, 8 and Matthew 28. Because what we see here is we see in Philippians chapter 2, he says, and Jesus, who was God, did not see his godhood as something to exploit over other people, but became a human and gave up his right to exercise his godhood and authority and became a human and died. So at that point, Jesus says, I'm not going to use my, all my power and all my authority anymore. I'm going to limit. Remember, I used this analogy a long time if you were here for Hebrews. I wrestle my daughters on a regular basis, okay? And I let them win many times. And if somebody drove by in the front yard and saw me wrestling my daughters, they would say, they, nobody says, oh my gosh, that's pathetic. That grown man is getting beat up by eight-year-olds. They would never think that. They know fathers well enough that they know that they allow themselves to get beat. But I could seriously injure my daughters at any moment if I chose to exercise all my strength. But because I love them, I choose not to exploit them. I choose not to exercise all my strength, but I give up the right to use it in order to play with them and have a relationship with them. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He has all the power and authority, but he chose not to use it and not exploit it over us so that he could become a human and have an intimate relationship with us. So then he goes to the cross and dies like he's supposed to. But Peter also says because he died on the cross and obeyed God even to the point of death, God vindicated him and gave him the right to have authority over all things and sit on the right hand of God. Philippians chapter 2 also says that once he made atonement for sins, he ascended to the right hand of God and was made heir over all things. What are you seeing in Daniel 7? Daniel 7 is his ascension. See, Daniel sees the Son of Man going to the throne of God and be given everything, but what he doesn't realize is that's fulfilling the ascension of Jesus. When Jesus was born, he gave it all up, and then he went to the cross, and then he died. And then, right after he died, he ascended into heaven, and that's where Daniel's vision kicked in. The Son of Man's popping up into heaven, and then coming with the clouds and walking up to God, and God is saying, well done, good and well faithful servant, my son, whom I am well pleased. I'm going to vindicate you now and give you all authority back again. That's what Daniel's substance vision is looking at. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 28 says, I have been given all authority and power and sovereignty. Well, didn't he already have that? Yes, but he's getting it back because he did what what Father wanted him to do. He is the obedient son. 
So throughout the Gospels, Jesus is portrayed as all three ideas of the Messiah, the king, prophet, and priest. And we see this in the beginning of the Gospels. Jesus always introduced as the king. The king is a ride. The king will save the world. The king who will rule over Israel. That is very much developed in the beginning of all the Gospels. So he's introduced that the, the greater, more perfect king that will do what no other king can do. Then the Gospels transition from the calling of Christ and him coming into his ministry of teaching. And that point he becomes the prophet. The teachings, the miracles, all his healings, that kind of stuff is the greater prophet. The greater, more perfect prophet who does what no other prophet can do. Then at the end of his life, as he journeys to Jerusalem, he starts talking about his death. And that's when he starts portraying himself as the high priest. That he's going to atone for the sins of the world. That he's going to make a sacrifice for their sins and make a new covenant with humanity. The greater, more perfect high priest. But all this, he's able to become the greater, more perfect king, prophet, and priest because he is the God-man. And that is constantly developed throughout the Gospels, that he can do this because he is the man, the Adam, the Israel that they can never be. The God that Yahweh has come down to do what humans could not do. So you have this king, prophet, and priest, as well as this concept of the God-man. But at the same time, he's developing the idea that I am the temple. And not only is he the temple, the presence of God, the dwelling of God, but he is also the lamb, the lamb sacrifice that allows you to get into the presence of God and actually dwell with him. And so all these ideas, these are the main ideas that are being developed throughout the Gospels, that Jesus is the God-man that enables him to become the greater and more perfect king, prophet, and priest. And as he is those three things... He will do what nobody else could do. He will become the lamb's sacrifice that allows us enter into the temple of God and dwell with him. And one day he will come back and destroy all evil and sin and rule over the world. And that he's doing all this for us.